welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Our very connected world seems to generate more anxiety, depression, and division than community. Could focusing on who we connect to rather than how many make a difference? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Psalm 23 with this sermon entitled The Lord is Our Rest, which covers Psalm 23 verses 2 and 3. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Now for the reading of God's word, Kristen Cornett's gonna come and read Psalm 23 for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kristen. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60, or a hundredfold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen and amen. I wanna ask you a rhetorical question. Just think about this. If you were to give me one word that would uh, explain where we are as individuals in America right now, descriptive of our disposition, descriptive of our countenance, of what we feel on a daily basis, what might that word be? Now, you may have positive things that come to your mind, which is certainly true. There are many wonderful, great things about living in this country. But I wanna say this, as I have read over the last couple of years, so many things, so many articles, uh, so many various outlets of information, books even, uh, there are words that are consistently being used to describe Americans in this day and age. And they're not all that positive. They're words like anxious, depressed, fearful, divided, overwhelmed, exhausted, even words that are being used more recently as toxic. These are, these are words that may have actually even popped into your own mind as you think about society at large, but even maybe for your own heart and your own mind. I'm gonna pick one of those words and say that um, it's probably the most prominent right now, and I don't know that we would really be able to argue with it based on some of the most recent research, and that's the word anxious. We are an anxious country. We are an anxious people. 
Some of the statistics as I did some research this week have certainly backed that up. Just since 2020, since the pandemic first began in 2020, rates of depression and anxiety have climbed, not just in this country, but globally, more than 25%. Women experience an almost 30% increase in major anxiety and depressive disorders. Men, 24%. It's affecting women just a little bit more, but men are not far behind. Younger age groups saw greater increases in depression and anxiety than older groups. The most affected is 20 to 24-year-olds. Anxiety is the most common mental disorder in the United States. With over 40 million adults being diagnosed with some form of anxiety. It's interesting, Barnes & Noble has recently reported that in the last five years, since 2017, Barnes & Noble, largest retailer, book retailer in the United States, said that they have had a huge surge in the sale of books about anxiety in the last five years. People are looking for answers, how to deal, how to cope. Why do I feel the way that I do and how do I get out of this, this reality? It's interesting, if you go all the way back to the 1960s, from the 1960s up until now, research has shown that there's been a significant shift in who struggles with anxiety and depression. And one of the things that in, in a study that I read about that was pulled out that is common to mankind throughout human history, but we're seeing a growth even over the last 50 to 60 years, is that those who have means, the wealthy, are the ones who tend to struggle with anxiety and depression the most. I'll read you a line from one of the study's conclusions. It said that um, they looked specifically at freshmen in college, this one study, with their attitudes and responses to survey questions over a 40-year period, found that the number of students who placed an importance on financial gain has almost doubled since the 1960s. Whereas what used to be true is that students would be more focused on developing a meaningful philosophy for life. Another result confirmed that. Another survey result confirmed that. This study showing that the results best fit a model citing cultural shifts, listen to this, cultural shifts over the last 50 years towards extrinsic values rather than intrinsic values. Values that are based more on materialism and status rather than community and meaning in life. It's interesting. Lastly, and this is certainly not a surprise, more recently, in the last decade, those who have frequented at a higher volume social media platforms are more given to anxiety and depression. We are an anxious people. We are a struggling people. We fear Worry plagues us. What do we do with it? What's the answer? Now, Scripture gives us a very specific answer. And this is kind of the main idea of where we're headed in Psalm 23 this morning. Here's the overall big idea of these two verses, verses two and three that I'll read in just a moment. When under the care of the one true good shepherd... When under his care, rest becomes our commonplace. 
Rest becomes our commonplace. Emotional rest, certainly spiritual rest, but even physical rest. We become a people who when submitted to the good care of the one true good shepherd, we rest. Now, I wanna be careful in saying this. Many of you know my story, I've shared it before, where I have had um, battles in my past and even, even ongoing with anxiety. I've shared about 20 years ago, how 20 years ago I, I had a significant bout with anxiety and depression. And one of the things that I've learned through this journey in my own life is that anxiety is yes, uh, primarily and, and most importantly, an issue of who are we submitting to, the one who can actually deal with the anxiety, but there is a physiological reality to it that requires medication. So I don't want you to hear me say that as I preach this sermon and, and point to the Good Shepherd, he will give us rest, but it may or may not mean that you need to seek medical attention as well. So please hear that. But when we are under the care of the Good Shepherd, rest becomes our commonplace. Some of you have experienced this to be true in the sense of you know that you've walked with Jesus long enough, you've been a follower of Christ long enough, you have experienced him as the good shepherd long enough, that you know that there is something that sometimes you can't even put a finger on, but just being with him brings peace. We run to the good shepherd so that anxiety may die in his arms as he holds us, as he reminds us of his sovereign rule and reign over all things, as he cares for, for us. That's what these two verses are about. Last week we looked at the first verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We talked about what does that mean to not want? We remembered that the Lord is Yahweh, the all mighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe who spoke creation into being. And at a certain level, he is terrifying. But then simultaneously, equally, immediately, he's also near and he's good and he's kind and he's benevolent and he's compassionate, he's gracious and forgiving and loving far beyond our wildest imaginations. And so we get this God who is beyond us in every way, who is unique and other and holy and set apart, one that we dare approach without dying, but one who has made a way to come near and draws us near as the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But what David does, King David here, as he writes this out, is he begins to expound on even what does that look like to not want. And this is what he says. Listen to verses two and three again. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yeah, David opens a window for us into ancient times to help us remember that anxiety is not anything new. Restlessness, restlessness is not anything new. It's been common to man for, for the beginning of, since the beginning of time. Fear is nothing new. Being overwhelmed is nothing new. Wondering and 
wondering where, uh, where rest comes from is nothing new. He speaks to this and he points us specifically to one place, not just a place, but a person as a solution. I want you to notice, first of all, the first thing I want you to notice is that God as the good shepherd is the one who does all the work. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me or leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Every verb that you just heard in those two verses is in its original language, a continuous, ongoing, active verb. It's not just a one-time deal. He is continually doing those things for his sheep. Why? Because as sheep, we, we get up. He makes us lie down and we get up again. And he makes us uh, drink deeply from the still waters and then we run to other waters. And he, he restores our soul and then we run to other things to restore us. And he leads us in paths of righteousness and we create our own paths of righteousness. And he continually is the gracious, patient shepherd that he is. He stays with us and he does the work. I want to walk through each one of these stanzas and just give some thoughts along each one and some, some applications from each one. First, he makes me lie down in green pastures. One of the greatest works, perhaps, at least in modern times, that's ever been written on Psalm 23 was written in the early 1970s by a guy named Philip Keller, who spent years as a Bedouin shepherd in the Middle East. And then came back from that experience and wrote down in all of his journals and all of his thoughts on what he learned as a shepherd and what he learned about sheep and the metaphors and the ways in which it mirrors what God does for us as our good shepherd and we as his sheep. This is one of the things that he wrote in his book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. He says, the strange thing about sheep is that because of their very makeup, it is almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. Here's the first one. Owing to their timidity, they refuse to lie down unless they are free from all fear. Secondly, because of social behavior within a flock, sheep will not lie down unless they are free from friction with others of their kind. Third, if tormented by flies or parasites, sheep will not lie down. Only when free of these pests can they relax. Lastly, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel in need of finding food. They must be free from hunger. So free from fear, free from conflict, free from pests or distractions, and free from hunger. So another way that we can say that is how do they look to the shepherd? What is it that they need from the shepherd constantly, every day? They, they look to the shepherd for protection, they look to the shepherd for peace in the midst of their conflict. They look to the shepherd for care from the pests and distractions, for relief. And they look to the shepherd to quench their hunger, to be fed, to be provided for. And it's interesting, as Keller continues through his book, I would encourage you to read it. There's just no way I can go into the intricacies of all that he brings out between a shepherd and sheep relationship. But with each one of those four, these things that keep sheep from lying down, he says the antidote, the answer 
is pretty simple. It's the presence of the shepherd. In all four scenarios, what do they need? They need the shepherd's presence. And so he walks through each one and he talks about when I'm with them, those things go away because I care for them and I do this for them, and I do this for them, I do this for them, I do this for them. But in the times when I have to move off the pasture to tend to something else, all these things come to be. The presence of the shepherd. Keller goes on to say, in the Christian's life, there is no substitute for the keen awareness that my shepherd is nearby. Now, I'll take just one of those. Again, I can't hit all four of the things that he said that keep us from lying down, but just one that I thought was pertinent because we have struggled. We have struggled in American Christianity over the last couple of years with, with conflict among each other. And I thought what he said here was so very helpful. He says this, one point that always interested me very much was that whenever I came into view and my presence attracted their attention, the sheep quickly forgot their foolish rivalries and stopped their fighting. The shepherd's presence made all the difference in their behavior. The shepherd's presence put an end to all rivalry. And in our human relationships, when we become acutely aware of being in the presence of Christ, our foolish, selfish snobbery and rivalry will end. It is the humble heart walking quietly and contentedly in the close and intimate companionship of Christ that is at rest, that can relax, simply glad to lie down and let the world go by. It's interesting how even the presence of the good shepherd brings about peace, not only with him, but with each other. Now, a lot of us struggle. We struggle with why do I struggle so much? We ask that question, what is it that I'm, why can I not have peace? Why do I always feel so anxious? And it sounds trite, I get it, I know, coming from a pastor preacher to say this, but it's true. It's where the Bible continually uh, pushes us and points us and says, this is the simple answer, although we find it to be incredib incredibly difficult, and that is seek the presence of the Lord. That it's in his presence that fear abates. It's in his presence that we experience the peace that we so desperately long for. It's in his presence that we sense and feel, perhaps for the first time ever, or the first time in a long time, or the first time since yesterday, I can lie down can rest because I'm aware, that's a key word, I'm aware of the presence of the Lord because what's reality? Reality is the Lord is always with us. His presence is always there. If you're a follower of, of Christ, he is living inside of you. The keyness is, the, the key word is awareness. To what extent are we aware that the shepherd is always with us? There's another great quote that I don't think you'll have on the screen that, that I think is phenomenal that just simply says this. One of the outstanding marks of a Christian should be a serene sense of gentle contentment. One of the outstanding marks of a Christian should be a serene sense of gentle contentment. Now listen, the shoulds of a sentence will kill us. 
We will live our lives constantly. I should be this. I should be that. I just can't get it together. Don't hear that this way. Just simply hear this. When Christ is at work in such a way in our lives that we are becoming more keenly aware of his presence, one of the things that naturally takes place because of our awareness of his presence is that there is a growing contentedness in the chaos of life. We're growing in the ability to rest. It should be, and I know that word is a heavy word, but it's true. What should be true of the church, the sheep who walk with the good shepherd, who know the good shepherd's voice and follow him, is that when the rest of the world is panicking, we are at peace. We're at rest because we know the shepherd. We know that he reigns over it all. We know that he's the sovereign one. We know that he's good. And even when everything feels like it's out of control and that he's not in control and that he's maybe not even good, we remember, no, 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 no. When I'm with him, when I'm aware of his presence, I can lie down. And part of the problem Please hear this, not as a a statement of condemnation, but just a reality of the struggle. Part of the problem with many in the church today is we don't spend time with him. We don't seek his presence. And so we are a fretful, panicky, anxious sheep. What does it even look like to spend time with him? Well, it's, again, it's simple, but it's hard. It's hard from the standpoint of that, for whatever reason, because of our sheep nature, we just buck against it. But two places that God has promised us that he speaks to us. Don't be freaked out by that. I don't mean burning bush speak to, to you. I don't mean voice from heaven speak to you. I just mean he meets with us. He calms our wayward spirits and he brings the peace that only the good shepherd can bring. It's through his word and and through prayer. And I'll give a third one, and his people. As we are gathered in the herd and as we devote ourselves to sitting in private with him and as we open his word, he makes us lie down in green pastures. One of the struggles that many of us have is this though. Some of us say, you know what, I do that pretty regularly. I sit with him and the morning is my time. But then I find myself by midday, even mid-morning, I'm back in that place of restlessness. I'm anxious throughout the whole day and I liken it to this. It's like, okay, it's great that you had time with the Lord in the morning. That's, we, we need that. We need to set aside time to sit with him. Don't neglect that. But also don't do this, don't, I liken it to this, don't just take a deep breath in the morning and then expect that one breath to get you throughout the whole day. I need to breathe throughout the whole day so I'm gonna, let's see if that lasts me. It's not gonna last, right? We gotta breathe throughout the whole day so that we can flourish physically. Well, in the same way, we keep breathing Jesus throughout the whole day. That yes, we sit with him in the mornings, but all throughout the day, we keep looking with eyes keen to the awareness of the Savior among us and in us. So that in the midst of the rising anxiety in my heart and my mind, I'm quickly sitting in the green pastures of the shepherd who is with me. Why is it so hard? Well, listen, it's it's been that way, like I said, from the very beginning. Israel struggled mightily 
with this. Listen to what God indicts them of in Jeremiah. After David has died, a couple hundred years actually after David has died, Jeremiah is a prophet of God. He's speaking to Israel and he's, he's rebuking them because they continue to run into other pastures and to seek after other shepherds that will never give them what he will give them. He says this, he says, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. They wandered over mountain and hill and forgot their own resting place. Whoever found them devoured them. Their enemies said, don't miss that. Their enemies said, the ones who devoured them said, we're not guilty. For they sinned against the Lord who is their verdant pasture. Did you catch it? Verdant means green, lush, full. Even the enemies recognize you have a God who is your green pasture and you will not lie down in him. And you keep running after all these other gods, these other shepherds, these other lovers who will never give you what God will give you. And it makes you weak and it makes you vulnerable. And we devour you because you ran away from your verdant pasture. In other words, God doesn't just give us a metaphorical green pasture to lie in. He is the green pasture. We lay down in him. We don't just run to things that he can provide. We tend to do that, do we not? God, if you will just give me this green pasture over here, I'll be at rest. And what we're not, we're not asking for him. If you'll just give me more of you, I'll be at rest. No, 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 no. that's not a request. Our request is if you'll just give me uh, kids that will do this for me, if you will just give me a wife who will do this for me, if you will just give me a husband who will do this for me, if you will just give me a job that will do this for me, if you will just give me a stable income, if you'll just give, that's my green pasture. And God, if you'll give it to me, then I'll lie down. And God says, no, you won't. I am your verdant pasture who you keep forgetting. I'm inviting you as the good shepherd. I'm beckoning you to lie down in me. You will not find rest for your weary souls until you find rest in him. So kids, parents, this is when you nudge your kids. Kids, who, who is the green pasture in whom we lie down Good, you can do better. Who is the green pasture in whom we lie down? Good. Now kids, I got, an, I got an assignment for you, okay? I want you to remind your parents of that. Kids remember that better than we do, do they not? Kids are the ones that are like, Daddy, Pastor Jeff said that we are to lie down in Jesus, and you're like, shut up, I don't wanna hear it right now. I know what he said, but it's true, and it's what we, what we need. Secondly, he leads me beside still waters. Still waters, in the original Hebrew, lit literally means waters of rest. Waters of rest, a place of rest. Now, what he's saying in this text is he's saying that our shepherd God leads us beside still waters to what end so that we would drink deeply from these clean, pure water sources. And any shepherd will tell you if they've done the, the hard work of shepherding, these are hard to find. 
There's a lot of bad water sources, but there's, there's every now and then tucked into the crevices of little rocks in different places, you'll find these pure, clear, clean water sources, and the shepherd finds those, and he leads his sheep to those places. Now, it's interesting. Yet again, you'll see a theme. For us, what is that clean source of water? Listen to what Jeremiah said again to Israel to indict them. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. And how does, he, how does he describe himself? The fountain of living waters. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The way in which we naturally wanna go is to go to the broken cisterns of this world to drink contaminated water that we think will give us what only the fountain of living waters will. And we keep running there and we keep running there and we keep believing their lies and we keep thinking they will satisfy me only to experience them and discover them to be just like salt water. It tastes like water, we think it's good, but it leaves us more thirsty. And the good shepherd patiently and lovingly keeps reminding us, I am the fountain of living waters. Jesus comes onto the scene about six to 700 years after Jeremiah prophesied that. And Jesus does, does something really profound. He says this in John seven. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now let me just give you some really quick context. It says that on the last day of the feast, what feast of that is that? That's the feast of booths, which means nothing to you if you don't have a Jewish background, but to to first century Jews, that was an incredible celebration that had been going on for generations, for centuries, celebrating two things primarily, water and light. It was the Feast of Booths where they would spend an entire week tabernacling, building tents, booths, all throughout the city of Jerusalem where uh, all these people would journey to the, uh, to the city and celebrate for a week that God led the people of Israel out, led their ancestors out of Israel by using a pillar, pillar of fire, the light, and by providing water in the wilderness. And so part of their celebration during the week would, would be that the week, as the week progressed, more and more candelabras would be brought in to light up the city. And the temple on Mount Zion was the brightest spot and they would light up the whole city that by the end of the week, you could see it for miles around at night. They would also celebrate water, culminating in the high priest on the last day taking this huge basin from the temple and walking out of the temple, out of the city to the, to the pool of Siloam with the throngs of people behind him singing and praising God for providing water, both literally and figuratively, to quench their souls. And he would dip it into the pool of Siloam and then they would go back singing and praising God as he brought it back into the temple. Now, Think about this, this has been happening for centuries upon centuries, generation after generation, and it was on the last day of the feast that Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, stands up and says, um, that water the whole time has been pointing to something. 
the whole time, the, the water you've been celebrating is a reminder of Jeremiah, what he told you. I, I am the fountain of living water. It's never been about primarily or exclusively what happened in the Exodus. The Exodus is pointing to the true Exodus that I can save you from your sin and quench your thirsty soul. If you come to me, you'll never be thirsty again. One chapter later, in the same context, he stands up and he says, I'm the light of the world. In me, there is no darkness at all. In the context of a city lit up by candles, he says, I'm the light. It's never been about the pillar of fire exclusively. That was pointing to something. Me, I am the good shepherd. I am the still waters who you are led to, to drink deeply from. Would you stop drinking all the contaminated water, the parasites and the bacteria of sin that will destroy you from the inside out. Come and drink of me. Let me purify your soul and be thirsty no more. So kids, here's your second question. Who is the fountain of still waters that we drink from? Who? Say it again. Good job. I like that one. Good job. Third, I'll move a little quicker for the sake of time, but listen. Third, he leads me in paths of righteousness. I'm sorry, that's the fourth one. He restores my soul is the third one. He restores my soul. That word restores means to turn back, to return to. I love this quote from David B. Calhoun. He says, God not only saves us when we are lost sinners, but he restores us when we are wandering Christians. I mentioned it a moment ago, but... I want to bring back to the reality of just the nature of sheep. Shepherds will tell you, sheep wander. They always think the grass is greener. You'll have them in lush pastures, and they will go to the edge of those and try to get out of that pasture's fence to get to brown grass. They're constantly wandering, and shepherds are in this completely exhausting daily activity of getting sheep back into the herd, to bring them back, that they would return. And listen, here's the thing, that to restore my soul means to turn back, but we can't turn back. We can't return. We're a people that, just like sheep, we get fixated on what might be better over there than what my shepherd has given me. And what does he do? He restores us. He chases after us. You remember the story of Jesus? Remember where he talks about that he'll leave the 99 that are in the flock to go get the one who's wandered away and he brings them back and there's a celebration in heaven when he does. There's this thing that shepherds talk about that's called the cast sheep, C-A-S-T. When a sheep is cast, it means that he has wandered away and he has somehow gotten himself on his back and if a sheep is on his back, he can't get back on his feet. Can't do it. This happens sometimes because there's so much wool, they're top heavy and they just fall over. Sometimes it happens because they actually do find a place to lie down and they get so comfortable, they roll onto their back and they're stuck. Now what begins to happen, if you leave a sheep there too long, if the shepherd doesn't find that cast sheep, blood will go out of its head and all the feeling and ability in its, uh, in its feet and whatever sheep have, 
those things, legs, yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, you lose feeling, blood drains out, and they die. And so when a, sheep when a shepherd notices that a sheep is gone, he thinks they might be cast, and so he goes looking for them, and then when he finds them and it is cast, what does the shepherd do? The shepherd has to do all the work. The shepherd gets down, and he picks the sheep up, he turns it over, he puts it on his feet, and he holds it as he waits for the blood to get back to the brain of the sheep and into its extremities. If he just puts it back on his feet and then walks away, the sheep's gonna topple over back onto its back again. It, it's helpless. So to restore a sheep who's cast helpless on his back is to get with it, to hold it back in the right position and lovingly embrace it until he is ready to move again back into the herd through the leadership of the shepherd. Anxiety, fear dies in the arms of the good shepherd. And he leads us back to the herd People who are running from the good shepherd also run from his sheep. Now, sheep bite, that's why. But a lot of people have been hurt from the church, and so they wrongfully say, I'm gonna run from the church. And they, I understand why they run from the church, but as they run from the church, they're also running from the shepherd because it's actually in this broken mess of a church where God works and encourages and helps you not become cast. So he leads us back to him, yes, but he leads us back to the herd, to the church. Lastly, he leads, he leads me in paths of righteousness. For his namesake, I forgot the question. Kids, who restores us when we are cast down? I don't know who you are, but I'm very proud of you. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. A translation from the fifth century reads that verse as this, translates that verse as this. He brings me from the wrong path to the right path. And, and Jesus does that as the good shepherd. That, he does that. He changes our lives. When we submit to the leadership to the sovereignty, to the lordship of the good shepherd. He does that. He takes us from the wrong path and he puts us on the right path. There's transformation that can only be done by the good shepherd. After the first service, someone came up to me and said, you know, my son was actually a shepherd for uh, some time in, uh, in New Zealand. And he said, the hardest thing about being a shepherd is that you are constantly, constantly, constantly grabbing sheep who are going the wrong way and putting them back in the way they should go. Constantly. You go, oh, man, that's what God does with me. But it's even more than that. Yes, he changes our lives. And yes, he takes us from the wrong path and puts us on paths of righteousness. But even more, he is our righteousness. Have you noticed the theme? He's not, he doesn't just point us to green pastures. He is green. He is the green pasture we lie down in. He doesn't just present to us these uh, uh, still waters. He is the fountain of living still waters that we drink deeply from and satisfy our thirsty souls. He doesn't just take us and restore us. He is our restoration. He is the one in whom we are restored. 
And he doesn't just take us from wrong paths and put us on right paths. He is our righteousness. And here's the reality. Why does that matter? Well, the, the, the big issue is this. Our biggest problem is our unrighteousness. Our biggest problem is unrighteousness. Another way to say that is sin. We stand before a holy God who desperately loves us but cannot be with us because God, as being a holy God, cannot be in communion and union and relationship with a sinful people. And so in our unrighteousness, we have zero ability to stand before God as accepted because we are condemned in his holiness. And so we need one who will come. We need one who will come and actually be for us everything that we can't be. We need a righteous one. But we don't need just a righteous one who will be what we can't be. We need a righteous one who will be what we can't be and then be our substitute. That in him we too may be found to be righteous. So he comes as the shepherd, yes, but he took on the wool, if you will, of the sheep. And he stood in the gap for us. And he did everything that we can't do and all the ways that we can't be righteous. He was fully and completely and perfectly righteous and good and sinless. And he became not the shepherd, but the sacrificial lamb. So that in his righteous death, we may be clothed in him by faith. So we stand before him now, not as condemned in our unrighteousness, but if your faith is in Jesus, the righteous one, you are now clothed in his wool, as it were, and you stand in his righteousness, fully and completely accepted. He leads us in paths of righteousness, but why? For his name's sake. For his glory, we would be tempted to read verses two and three, and if we don't catch that last part, we think the whole point is about us, and it's not. God, ultimately, from the beginning of time until the all of eternity to come, has always been, eternity past and eternity future, ultimately about his glory. He does what he does for his name's sake. That we may glory in him as our good shepherd. Listen to these, this verse from Philippians 2. Closed up my notes before I wanted to read you something. In Philippians 2, it says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'll close with this. A couple hundred years-ish after David died, the writer of Psalm 23, another prophet, we mentioned Jeremiah, another one came along named Ezekiel. And he prophesied something. He predicted something that would come to be several hundred years later. He said this. He said, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice, in righteousness. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Remember, David's dead. He's not talking about David. He's talking about the true and better 
and greater David, Jesus. He is the good shepherd. May we rest in him. Father, we pray that you would give us the ability to come unto you, the great shepherd of the sheep, and find you to be everything Psalm 23 tells us you are. That in you, may we, we, we may lie down in green pastures. In you, we may be led and drink deeply from still waters. That in you, we find our souls restored. And in you, we find our righteousness. All to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.